I only go to get my parcel and they'll ask me, are you busy tonight? I say I might be playing Xbox, I've caught chicken pox Or any other excuse, they could say there'll be a man breathing fire Tyro walking a high wire, no I never mean to be rude I'm never really interested, not even when they've instead it Unless they say there's free drinks and food Hello friends, welcome back to episode 13 of the Free Food, Free Drinks podcast. It is great to have you with us. Now, this week we have what I would class a VIP on the podcast, so much so that he even tried to negotiate a fee to come on to the podcast. I had to dig into my Holy Communion savings just to afford him because we have no budget. I joke, of course. Why, this week we have the very important, all the way from Royal Holloway University, it's Robert Young. Woo! Yay, applause. What do you mean? I'm not getting paid? No, sorry. Um, I spoke to your lawyer about it. Uh, I should get a new lawyer. <laughs> Did you not get that message? No, didn't get that message. Never mind. Never mind. I'm, I'm happy to waive my fee for this one time. This week, Rob, we are talking to you about your research that you recently completed as part of the MA in Student Affairs, that little, little thing that we hardly ever talk about on the podcast. Um, and your research is something that I know you're very passionate about, very informed about, and it's something that pretty much comes up in your work, I would say, every day. And you focus your research on forced migrant students, which I have to say is an area that I don't know very much about. I know a little about thanks to our conversations in class over the last couple of years and you talking about your research and how it was going. But I think many people out there probably don't know much about forced migrant students or perhaps don't come across forced migrant students in their work every day. It would be great if we could start off a conversation with you providing us with an overview of your research subject and why you got into that area. Yeah, absolutely. So I think, first of all, sort of why I got into it. So I've I've been in education ever since graduating and I started off one of my first jobs was in further education so uh, in colleges and my first sort of exposure to asylum seekers really was at that further education college we used to teach uh, English as a second language so ESOL classes and I used to help with the admissions side of that and then also with enrollment and funding issues and it, it was just really interesting because it was the first time I'd ever really spoken to an asylum seeker seen an asylum seeker um you know i i was a i've led a relatively sheltered privileged life a very lovely life but you know i've i've not really had that exposure to that so it was really the first time that i had met anybody who'd been through that process met people who were truly international in so far as you know they'd come from all over the world their english was something they wanted to work on and and they were at the college to learn that so that's kind of where the the sort of the penny initially dropped that I had an interest in this area and especially its interaction with education. It became very clear very quickly that it was very, very complicated, even at an English language level. The funding, the, the mechanisms behind it, their immigration statuses, it was really, really complicated. I've always been an advocate and I've always believed in education being a, a right, not a privilege. So this idea that there were barriers in place didn't really sit very well with me. So that kind of, you know, percolated in my head for a while. And it was something that I did quite a lot of and, and spent a lot of time at uh, further education. And then when I moved to higher education, I, I sort of had a little bit less exposure initially. And it's probably been in the last three to four years or so that that has intensified, primarily whilst I've been at Royal Holloway. And I started dealing with some 
students coming in to Royal Holloway on scholarships, kind of by accident, really. I got contacted by uh, one of our scholarship recipients and, and worked with her to get her into the program. And really, my interest has just kind of flourished from there, really. And the thing that that really underpins it all is, as I say, that that great debate over the last few years about what education is and especially what higher education is for and what universities are for. As you know, we spent a long time discussing this on our on our degree and, and what the purpose of it is. You know, is it a public good or a private good? And I'm a strong believer in education being one of the most transformative things that human beings have created and, and focus on. So this idea that people were almost being denied access to it through no fault of their own after going through some of the things people have gone through just really didn't sit well with me. So for my research, tying it into what I did, I decided to look at the student experience for forced migrants and kind of tied that into looking at a wider subject of, you know, how how is the work that we are doing working? You know, what is happening in the sector? What do staff think about it? What do students think about it? And really looking to kind of summarize what the forced migrant student experience is like in 2020. And you've mentioned a couple of things quite early on, which is great because they are subjects and things that resonated with me when I read your research. And that's one of privilege because reading your thesis, my first thought was, oh my God, how much privilege do I have to one, be born in this part of the world, to not have had or not have had to go through the experiences that some of the participants that you interviewed have gone through. And how lucky am I that I have the choice to engage in education or not engage in education should I feel it's the thing for me that I want to do, which of course I have done. And in a, in one sense, you just feel this overarching sense of luck. How lucky are we? How lucky am I? Um, not just to be born in this part of the world, but just so many other things. It's so multifaceted. So I'm glad that you mentioned that really early because that was one of the overarching things that I certainly mm. felt reading your research. In terms of literature, obviously you did a very thorough literature review. It was really fascinating to read. What does current literature say about forced migrant students in the UK and, and what are the gaps that you identified? Yeah, funnily enough, we we kind of hit a bit of an issue straight away. Uh, well, I suppose maybe not an issue, but we hit a subject which is hit, touched on during my research. And it's something that I think is a big takeaway globally from the research that I've done. And that is there is not much research done on forced migrant students. Now, there is a quite a bit of research done on refugees and those seeking asylum, but not on forced migrants. And I'll kind of touch on that in a moment, but that in itself is an interesting definition to make. And I, I had a personal choice as to why I was looking at forced migrant students as a term rather than specifically say refugees. But in terms of, you know, refugees and asylum seekers and those who you would probably classify under forced migrant students, there is quite a bit of research in specific areas, but on the student experience, there's very little. There's not much that has been done in the UK so far. Much of the research revolves around things like uh, access issues and barriers to higher education. That's quite pop, not popular is the wrong word, but that is quite a common uh, area of research at present because it's the biggest issue in higher education for those seeking higher education when they've come from a forced migrant background. So a lot of it focuses on the barriers rather than the experience once they're there. 
it's kind of the same worldwide as well. I mean, I think UNHCR say that only 1% of the refugee youth go to higher education level of study. So it's a tiny proportion of people. And then even within that, from a research scholarship side of view, there's not a huge amount on it yet. So it's quite a burgeoning topic, especially in the UK. I mean, certainly in the UK, the response to sort of issues with access or even any kind of research, not a huge amount predates 2015. Um, 2015 is when the UK really started responding as a country to the Syrian crisis and the Syrian civil war. So that's where you see quite a lot of things suddenly spring up and a lot of research spring up. There is some prior to 2015, but much less. So we are talking about quite an early days topic here as well. So that's really why I wanted to kind of take my research and move beyond access issues and focus more on, okay, well, assuming that we've done the work to bring them into higher education, what is their experience like once they're here? And forgive me if this is a really ignorant question, um, but I'm thinking of perhaps of maybe listeners who may are thinking similar, but is there a difference between forced migrant students or those classified as forced migrant students and refugees and even asylum seekers, or are they similar to refugees? And that might sound like a very ignorant question, but for those who don't understand what the definition is, is there a definition and is there a difference? Yeah, absolutely. So that is a very good question. It's not at all an ignorant question because I think it's a very common question. I think unless you have sort of some technical knowledge or, or broader awareness of the sort of legal framework around it, it it's not immediately obvious. Um, so certainly between forced migrants and refugees, for example, there is a big difference and really it's a legal one. So a refugee is somebody who's been granted a legal status and is sort of designated as a refugee. So there are legal mechanisms in place for refugee statuses to be granted. That is a worldwide thing. You can seek refuge in a country and you can claim asylum and get a refugee status. So an asylum seeker is someone who has arrived in a country, but for argument's sake, let's say the UK, and has arrived and is now formally seeking asylum. So is putting in essentially a plea to the government of that country to be given refugee status. So an asylum seeker is leading to that refugee status position. In terms of forced migrants, that's kind of a bit of a term that has no legal definition per se. There are some definitions out there, but that was actually part of the initial part of my study was really deciding how did I want to go about or what term did I want to go about using? Because it was, it felt a little bit exclusionary to use something like refugees or asylum seekers. It kind of looked at a subject that was a bit too narrow. Whereas for me, forced migrants for me includes refugees, asylum seekers, but also beyond immigration statuses. It also looks at those who have, fled persecution or fled war or who have fled risk or danger or anything essentially and i'm not saying that either is a bad term to use or even that focusing on refugees would have been a a, a poor choice it was a personal one and the reason i really highlighted on it was because i i do feel that within the sector we we have a tendency to drift towards those who are seeking asylum or who are refugees primarily because their barriers are really, really high. And we work in a system that is designed to designate people by immigration statuses. Now, as an international advisor, you battle against that all of the time. You know, you battle against this dichotomy of home students and international students. 
So it's so ingrained in the sector that I do think that that's kind of a natural thing to have done. But as we will hopefully touch on later on, is it's just not that simple. Um, immigration status is not a good example of who would fit into that bracket of somebody who has, you know, fled awful wars or, or um, threats in their home country, or who being victimised for being gay, or victimised for being a woman, or you know, these things are equal standing on those who are seeking asylum for other reasons. So for me, I kind of felt I wanted to broaden it out. It was a subject that had already been touched on by Article 26 before they got uh, amalgamated into the University of Sanctuary and the City of Sanctuary movement. So Article 26 was um, part of something called the Helena Kennedy Foundation. And it was run to kind of start facilitating scholarships and access scholarships for students who were seeking sanctuary in the UK, so seeking asylum or, or whatever else. And part of their research and part of their principles was moving away from using immigration statuses as a way to designate people, essentially, and to try and use forced migrant as a catch-all term to try and include as many people as possible because, you know, I wanted my research to follow that line because I wanted to be inclusion. I wanted to make sure there was inclusion in who I was looking at and not to try and exclude people where possible. So it's a very long way round of explaining, but there are legal definitions against refugee, which doesn't exist for forced migrants. But it's completely fascinating. I'm glad that you've gone into that level of detail because I am not as informed on that subject as I said earlier. So actually, you know, I've learned something new, which I hope other people have done so as well. In terms of the UK is a destination for forced migrant students. What's your experience in the institutions that you currently work in and have worked in? Are we a popular destination? And I ask that, changing it with um, an element of, you know, over the last couple of years, particularly with Brexit, it's been very much the rhetoric from some, not everyone, about not welcoming people into the country. And I wonder, has that impacted the vision of the UK as a place where people can come, forced migrant or refugees, to study in the UK? Can they continue, or do they still see it as a place where they can continue to come and be welcomed? Yeah, it's a really good question. And actually, I'm really glad that you asked that question because I think you're right. In the last, in the last few years in particular, there has been a... Um, no, you know it has. It's been a it's been a rhetoric from the Home Office in particular, but also from um, the UK government and also other countries. It's, it's not just a UK issue um, that is kind of almost defining those seeking asylum or refugees or those coming from other countries as kind of picking and choosing where they want to be, and kind of you know there's been a lot of talk about those who have fled from certain countries landing or ending up, say, in mainland Europe, call it France or, or Germany or Spain or Greece even, and then coming to the UK. And there's been a lot of discussions recently, even the Home Secretary's touched on it, where there's almost this attitude, well, if they've reached a safe place, they should stay there. Uh, and, you know, that, that rhetoric is somewhat dangerous because it's making assumptions on a lot of different things. It's assuming that France is safe for them or it's assuming Greece has suitable living conditions for that individual. And, you know, I, I'm of the opinion that a human being shouldn't settle um, if we have potential to be somewhere safer, happier, with better prospects. Um, I, I'm not one for settling. I know I wouldn't. Uh, so the UK is very much seen as, as, a, as a safer place as some of mainland Europe, despite the fact that we don't take nearly as many refugees as mainland Europe. Say Germany, Germany takes 
many, many times over the amounts of um, refugees and those seeking asylum than we do. And the UK's tiny, minimal amounts. And obviously then in the news at the moment is all of the, the crossings across the channel. And even within that, that those crossings are a tiny proportion of those that we take in. So there's a lot of rhetoric around choice and people making the decision to come to the UK as if they're kind of shopping for a country to be in. Um, in terms of whether we're a, we're a destination that people want to be or feel is a place where they could thrive, which is perhaps the, the more balanced question, um, there was definitely a trend to suggest that Brexit had a negative impact on that. However, that does seem to have tailed off slightly. So I would say that the UK is still seen as a safe place and it's still seen as a place where people can succeed. Uh, obviously, English is a very dominant language across the world. So English is also a, a good skill to have if you don't speak English. You know, when you're looking at places to be, if you can learn English, that's a skill that's going to bode you well no matter where you are. So yes, the UK is, is still seen as a safe place, um, but there's no or at least I'm not aware of it. Um, there's no kind of pull factors specifically for, say, higher education that that are over and above other, other countries, um, other than we're fortunate to have a very strong higher education provision in the UK and that the UK is a prosperous, largely safe place. Um, and I think what we've got to remember is people are escaping potentially, well, not potentially, but people are, are escaping horrific conditions. And um, I think... The UK is still seen as that place where you know, people talk about like the American dream, right? And people talk about uh, moving to the US, building a company and thriving, becoming this this big exec. You know, the UK is is like that. You know, people do see the UK as somewhere where their family can live safely and thrive and grow and become nationals of. And I, I think we should be proud to have that and we should be proud to be that place. So I think as a country, yes, we are an attractive prospect for people. And uh, I personally feel that that's one of our greatest strengths as a nation. And you touched on it slightly there where you mentioned about the type of situations that your participants your participants were fleeing or getting away from. And that is something that shines through your research and really kind of it, it gives that really emotional angle to it. It's difficult to read at times. And we'll go into a bit more detail when we talk about the participants. But, you know, I read one of your participants said about making the choice of, well, whether do I stay here in my country and potentially get killed or go to university in the UK, even though it may not be their number one choice of university they might have wanted to go to, it's still a good university and a great opportunity. But do I stay and get killed or go to this university? And when you read something like that in black and white, again, comes down to privilege and how lucky you are as an individual to be born in this part of the world and never have to face such um, peril. And that was something that really stood out in your research, that, that level of, I guess, difficult decision. You know, it's, it's, it's hard to take in at times. Yeah, absolutely. And, and those interviews were hard. <laughs> uh, those interviews were really difficult. Uh, it was difficult to hear and you could you could sense the kind of the the inner conflict with a lot of it as well, which I know I'll touch on a little bit later. I also wanted to to, to return a little bit briefly, if I can, to to something that you said about about privilege, and I think something that's really important. I've mentioned Syria already. Syria is the kind of the prime example of a of a country where before the civil war and before the unrest in Syria 
escalated to the conditions that it's in now. It, it was a country where we have to also remember Syria was a very prosperous place. It was a place where people could have access to higher education. There were universities, very well-renowned universities with well-renowned professors, well-renowned researchers and, and amazing degrees. And when we talk about privilege, I think we often look at it, in, and especially in the West, we look at privilege and say, okay, well, we'll look at X person. I am so fortunate to be able to access the things that person X cannot and actually what we're looking at when we're talking about forced migrant students more often than not is we're not actually looking at that type of privilege because those people in those countries were privileged as well. Yes, of course, there, there are different levels of privilege and, and some are more fortunate than others, of course. But what we're really looking at in situations like this is it's a great equalizer because no matter how privileged a person you are, if you were in the wrong place at the wrong time, your whole country could be left behind. And suddenly you have, you know, potentially no friends, no family, nowhere to go, no matter how, what privilege you had. And all of a sudden, you're at this level where you just need to find somewhere safe to live. And that's when we're talking about countries now. Um, so I think, you know, on a, on a point of privilege, I, I kind of do want to get across to people as well that it, that it is an, an awful thing. But the reality is that it could, in theory, be any of us at any time. And that we are just fortunate that we have peace, well, whatever you want to necessarily term as peace, in the West at the moment, in the UK. Um, but realistically, this could be any of us at any time, no matter what social position you may be. It's a reality that we could all face in theory. Mm, yeah, it's a really good point. Also, if anything, to make you grateful for what we do have in the here and now and like you said it could be something that could happen to anyone at any time and yes it is the great um equalizer like you mentioned just going back to your literature review you discussed that there are a lot of access issues for forced migrants and talk about barriers um could you highlight a couple of those what were the key access issues that you came across yeah and this is this is obviously where a lot of the effort and time and commitment and passion and research has gone into because naturally it is the the biggest difficulty for anyone who has come to the UK or is in the UK and is looking to to join higher education probably one of the most major ones is financial barriers so one of the main issues that is largely potentially resolvable especially it's controlled by the institutions it can be changed is that 99% of the time, students who are seeking asylum, for example, will be assessed as an international fee payer. Now, obviously, we, we kind of know that home rates are pretty high. They're 9250 a year for an undergraduate program, probably an average postgraduate program, maybe around £10,000. But when we're looking at international fee rates, that's, you know, potentially double that. And if you're seeking asylum, you know, you're you're on you're given £37 a week by the Home Office, you're not going to be able to afford that. So financial barriers are a huge one. And it's not just in terms of the fees. I've alluded to it there. If, if you're seeking asylum, it, it's a particularly vulnerable place to be. Like I say, the Home Office gives you very minimal amounts of, of living maintenance per week. Um, it's barely, well, you could argue it's not really enough to get by, but it's barely enough to get by. 
you're also not allowed to work as an asylum seeker. So there's no way of bringing in money other than what's coming from the home office. So being an asylum seeker is a very vulnerable place to be. If you are a, if you are granted refugee status, then you can access student loans. So you can access Student Finance England. But all of the other decisions that you could get from an asylum application. So there are multiple other decisions you could get. Um, so if you're unsuccessful in getting refugee status, you may be successful in getting something else. But those something else have quite complicated requirements for getting access to loans. If you're an asylum seeker, you don't get access to them full stop. And so really it comes down to needing access bursaries. So it comes down to having a university that can offer, say, a full tuition fee waiver. Uh, more often than not, it involves some kind of maintenance living costs because you know people have just fled whatever country. They're not necessarily going to bring all their bank cards and all their money sitting in their bank, um, or even if they're fortunate to have access to money in their home country either. So you know, the reality is financial burden is huge. And also, if you have fled and then you've entered the UK, through non-standard means so whether that be channel crossings for example what people forget is with those channel crossings those people on those boats have probably paid thousands of pounds thousands of pounds to come across it's probably the last sum of money they have and they're essentially risking death or being caught and turned around for thousands of pounds which could possibly be their last amount of money so realistically we're talking financial barriers now i focused on asylum seekers particularly because it's quite extreme with asylum seekers, but it's not just those seeking asylum. It's, it's those with regular immigration statuses. So even if you are able to get a student visa, say, to come to the UK, then it's still extortionately expensive, um, both with the visa, with health charges on top of that. So there are a lot of financial challenges uh, coming over as a student. English is another one we've spoken about. So English language. So English language is taught in the UK, Obviously, it's very commonly taught, say, with further education colleges, as as I did when I was younger. We've seen cuts in a lot of funding for that from the government. So a lot of that was centrally funded by the government. I think that's been cut by around 60% in the last five years. So huge funding cuts. So the provision of ESOL is not as common. So we're kind of relying on people to kind of socially gain that ability, which is really not ideal. So there's not a huge amount of English access. And to gain access to university as an international student, you need to have a B2 level, which is B2 is kind of on a scale, which is a European scale, which is set. And B2 is pretty high. It's pretty high level standard of English, which again is a huge barrier to those. And if you can't get access to it and you can't find ESOL, how are you meant to gain access to higher education? That's a massive barrier, like, you know, huge. Uh, how would you expect anyone to get to that level unless they've been learning it since they're probably the age of four? Exactly. Yeah. And and if it's then, if they haven't, and they're coming over as, as a young child, say it becomes a generational issue, because then the parents need to learn it at a social level, pass that down. So it then becomes a generational issue. So it gets knocked down the generations. Um, a big shout out, just because it's the first one that comes to my mind, to the University of Leicester. Um, they have a scheme where they are providing free English classes uh, and they have an English language teaching unit specifically for those who are seeking sanctuary in the UK. They don't need to be coming to the University of Leicester for a degree. It can be anybody, but they have an English language teaching unit that 
that teaches English for free. So again, it, it's kind of looking at where universities can step in and fill the gap of where funding has been cut or central services aren't offering it anymore. So that, again, is a bit of a theme that we'll probably touch on a little bit later. And then another big one is is just a fundamental one is just inadequate advice. Yeah. Coming over as, as a forced migrant, if you have non-regular immigration status, so you're seeking asylum, it's so complicated, so, so complicated. How we expect people to navigate it on their own, I don't know. But also, you know, universities just aren't necessarily always equipped either. And if they don't fully understand that someone from, I don't know, if somebody has has fleed imminent danger, if they've arrived in the UK in that situation, they're probably not going to remember to bring their high school certificates with them. So it's also kind of having that fundamental understanding at a university level that you may need to say, contextualize your admissions process, or you may need to understand what access an asylum seeker has to education in the UK or funding. And it's very, very complicated. And this is not a a blame thing on universities at all, or even the third sector, the charities or anything. It's just that good advice from the very beginning is very difficult to come across. And just come back to the financial barriers you talked about, how important bursaries are Mm. and uh, universities of sanctuary and universities offering these programs. And you mentioned, you know, what Leicester does there as an example. And you mightn't have figures off the top of your head or maybe you've got a ballpark idea, but are there many universities that do offer these bursaries? And if they do, are they selective or how selective are they about who gets those bursaries? So, for example, is it a case of that they want really high achieving students from these particular countries or is it that strict? That's yeah, that's a really good question. And it's actually a very apt question because that, again, ties into one of the findings and conclusions from my research is that scholarships on their own are almost entirely responsible for the rise in in access for uh, students from forced migrant backgrounds, almost almost entirely on their own. But the flip side of that, as you quite rightly said, the difficulty with them is they vary. You know, if you're a, a small institution in the south, you may not see as many asylum seekers, for example, or refugees or forced migrants coming to your university because you're not in an area perhaps where asylum seekers are dispersed by the Home Office or housed by the Home Office. You may not have much funding available. So you may have a scholarship, but it may only say be, I say only, that sounds awful, doesn't it? But in the grand scheme of things, it may only be, say, a thousand pounds off some tuition. Um, We've got some institutions who do a complete fee waiver, complete accommodation waiver, and pay maintenance on top of that. We have everything in between. So there's huge variance across the country. I did do a little bit of side research whilst I was doing this naturally because, you know, it's me and you, we go off on tangents. And I did find that largely speaking, the bigger scholarships tend to be in the Midlands or the North, which makes sense because that is where uh, home office dispersal areas tend to gravitate towards. But they vary so wildly. They are never based on achievement. So that is, again, the slight difference between scholarships for uh, the majority of other scholarships and scholarships for forced migrant students. 
I don't think I've ever seen one based on achievement. It is based on situation. And I think that, again, is something where there's a bit of a disconnect. Uh, They can sometimes almost appear like they're almost appearing like recruitment tools and they're not. They're they're very much a, a humanitarian gesture and they're often funded because there is a, a passionate group inside the institution or the institution very much committed to, to, to aiding a local issue or, or whatever it may be, or an international issue. Um, but I think that, again, is the, the term scholarship is a little bit tricky because you think, as you, as you may have done, you think, oh, okay, you know, the, the excellent scholarships where you're a straight A student or you know, you're, you're doing extra things on the side. So there's an argument that maybe a scholarship is not the great word for it, but they are always based on situation rather than achievement. And uh, they do vary wildly across the country. And that therein does lie a bit of the issue, again, that we'll touch on in a, in a little while for um uh, potential scholars around the UK and potential students around the UK because it, it very much depends what access they can get and for some you know if it's not a full waiver they're not going to university. Moving on to your methodology Rob now I know you took the sometimes controversial route of mixed methods and part of me thought when you were thinking about doing that that you were a little bit mad that you took on a lot of work and you did when I read through your thesis I thought oh my god this was so much work how did you find time to do this take us through why you chose this approach and how your research then was structured ultimately yeah I I probably am a bit mad really I brought it on myself yeah so so I decided very early on that I I wanted to do a, a mixed methods approach um during our degree, we'd obviously done some practice type uh, work on how we would maybe want to structure things. And what came to me very early on with this was that it didn't feel right to necessarily just interview some people and present that as evidence, but it equally didn't feel right to say, just do some questionnaires, get some raw numerical data and use that as well. Uh, it just, it kind of neither really felt appropriate for the situation. So without going too nerdy on it, I kind of decided, well, I'm going to do a mixed methods approach. I'm going to do three separate strands of data collection, all different. My aim really behind that was, yes, to cause myself more hassle and stress, but also to kind of present it in a way where I'm saying these are three different types of data about the same kind of thing and to try and present a state of play. That was kind of my intention because, as I say, huge changes have happened since 2015. That was really a a major catalyst in 2015 where this really took off as a subject in higher education. So we haven't had time during that period to kind of reflect and go, right, well, what is the state of play now? What impact have we made? Where are we going? Are we going in the right direction? So that was kind of the intention. So the three particular strands looked at three separate things. So strand one was a content analysis. So it essentially looked at all of the access and participation plans of the top five universities uh, as by the complete university guide per region in the UK. That's a very long way round of, of saying, but the complete university guide essentially takes top five in their rankings uh, by region that's set by UCAS. So it's an easy way of, of grabbing a, a cohort of universities across the UK. 
access and participation plans are documents that are submitted by universities to the Office for Students and largely revolves around their widening participation efforts and the work that they're doing in widening participation. So uh, my view with that was to look at, okay, what are universities doing for forced migrant students? What work is happening? What work are they talking about? And also, is this a good resource for seeing what universities are doing? So that was strand one. Strand two was a set of questionnaires. So it was a questionnaire written and uh, done online for staff in higher education. So that was directed at anyone who was involved with working with forced migrants. Doesn't matter what department they were in, how they're involved or anything, it doesn't matter. But it was looking at questions like, you know, what is your job title? What do you do? What work has been successful? What work hasn't been successful? Do you have senior buy-in? All of those kind of things, just to kind of look at a snapshot of staff and to see, okay, first of all, who deals with this normally? Because my hypothesis in my head was, I'm going to bet that this is not centralized. This is not a common thread in all universities. I think this is passion projects for people. So I was also looking at that, you know, is this something where somebody has to be passionate about it? And then it kind of just all it's kind of a natural process or are universities embedding this fundamentally in, in what they do. So then the final strand was looking at participants. So students, specifically students who identified as forced migrants and was looking at interrogating their experience in higher education. So it was all semi-structured interviews and it was looking to discuss with them things like, you know, has your immigration status affected your time at UK universities? How do you find the UK as a whole? Has it been welcoming? Has your university been welcoming? Have you had the right support? Is there anything you felt was missing? So the idea then was to kind of bring all of that together and to say, well, this is what universities are saying externally. This is what universities are saying internally from staff. And this is what the student's opinion on all of that was. So the idea really was to elevate the voice of the forced migrant students themselves. So that's the bit that takes up the most space in my research. But it was to contextualize it with a bit of a sector snapshot of what is going on. So that was kind of my thought process behind the way I was structuring it. I mean, that obviously must have left you with a lot of data. And so what were your findings then ultimately? Because when you talk about staff there and wondering if the approach was centralized or not centralized and was it a passion uh, project for somebody that actually quite that stood out to me because you know I've been in situations where not looking at forced migrant students but you know passion projects are something that comes up in many organizations and institutions and I was really familiar with that term and quite like that you wrote about that so ultimately what were your findings across the three um, sets of data that you gathered? So kind of looking at the the more contextual picture first and something that kind of became very clear almost immediately was that access and participation plans are of no use whatsoever. Um, now, to put the caveat on that, are of no use to whatsoever in this situation. They are obviously of use, uh, but for this situation, they weren't. They didn't really go into much detail of what was happening. Some institutions did include forced migrants or refugee work or something like that in those plans. But what became quite clear very quickly was that those documents felt a bit more like a box ticking exercise. So for anyone who's not sure, an access or participation plan is a document that's mandated every year by, I think it's every year, by the Office for Students. And essentially, 
long story short, you have to be proving your widening participation activities to be able to charge the higher rate of fee, the £9,250 fee. Now, it is not to take away from the work universities are doing because when you read them, it's incredible, absolutely amazing. But within the participation plans, the key performance measures, the KPMs as they're called, are set by the Office for Students. So the work that's dictated and talked about in there is set by the regulator, not by the university. So you tend to not see extraneous stuff in there. And obviously for for the Office for Students, it's all relating to specific polar regions or it's relating to care leavers or adult learning. And and all of those are extremely important. But in terms of documents to assess the broad stroke view of someone's whining participation activity, not useful. Uh, It's very useful for what it does, but not useful in this circumstance. So that was something that came out quite early. What did also come out is that the term forced migrant is not used very often. It's more often than not refugee or asylum seeker. It was used sparingly, but very, very sparingly. So for those institutions that mentioned something, so there were a set of terms that I included as part of the content analysis. Uh, If somebody is interested, um, you can ask for my research and see what they were in there. Um, But sort of refugee and asylum was one, but also forced and forced migrant. So that kind of suggested very early on to me that that forced migration as a term is not being used, that the focus is still on refugees and asylum seekers, which absolutely is a great focus, but is perhaps a little more narrow than what could be the case. Um, it was also very, very interesting that, I, I again, it's difficult that the, the amount of respondents was lower than I would have hoped, primarily because of COVID, I think, but it was around 20 staff that responded to the questionnaire. And I would say that from 20, it was pretty clear that the breadth of job titles was huge. So I'm I'm pretty confident to say that unless somebody in your institution is extremely passionate about this subject, or you are in a region where it is a, uh, a local issue or is something that is brought up commonly, or you are a major institution where you kind of do a bit of everything, this isn't. This work may not be happening. So I would say that definitely lots of different people in higher education get involved in supporting forced migrants from all over the place. I had lecturers, I had heads of whining participation, student services, English language tutors, people across the whole spectrum of student affairs were involved. So it was very, very broad, very decentralized. And then the thing that really shone through and actually was reflected in the responses from the students, was that all of the pre-arrival stuff, the application process, scholarships, explaining what to expect, any help with visas if that was appropriate, any support prior to arriving at the institution, um, the the way students were talked to about how to get their funds, all of that, um, the work like some institutions were doing pre-arrival experience days where they get to see what their environment is going to be like. They get to see their accommodation. All of that work, phenomenal. Really successful staff said how successful it was and huge amount of work that people were doing. But then it wasn't reflected in post-arrival. So staff tended to focus very heavily on that access and barriers focus, which is very much a big, big barrier. But it seemed to suggest that the work almost stopped there. And I'm sure that probably isn't the case in reality. But 
the focus and what seemed to be successful didn't didn't seem to be coming through from the post arrival work. So it suggested to me early on that when I was going to speak with the students that that was something that was probably going to come out, uh, which it did. Uh, that was something that they commented on was that they struggled once they actually arrived to university because their experience pre-arrival had been so good. And then when they arrived, it's almost like they are one of thousands of students, right? We've all been through that. But if you're in a slightly different situation and you've been through slightly different things than the person sitting next to you, you, you may need some extra support. And uh, it, it was quite clear that that support wasn't at least as prevalent in the responses I had and that the students did did support that. There were some really key themes that came up from the research, kind of in the same way that we spoke to you, Rebecca, about your research and some of the things that came up. I obviously went through a very similar process when I was looking at my data from the interviews, um, the thematic analysis approach. And there were some really interesting things that came up. There were kind of four main issues that that came up over and above everything else. They were uh, acculturation, so difficulties with uh, acculturating to the UK, financial, funnily enough, um, we probably could have all predicted that one would come up, choice, and also institutional experience. I think the one I really want to touch on first, actually, is choice, because it's the thing that that uh, was one of my research questions, which was, you know, do you feel that you have suitable choice when you're looking at universities? Because all of us, if we've gone to university, we had some choice, and we wanted a particular course, but we could have gone anywhere. But my suspicion was that those who have come from a forced migration background probably wouldn't have the same level of choice. And actually, that was very, very much the case. In fact, from the responses I had from students, choice almost seemed like this kind of illusory thing that didn't really exist. And almost all of them said that they had compromised on a choice to go to a university. And it was kind of, as you said earlier, you, one of the quotes you mentioned was one of the more powerful ones that I chose to include, which was, you know, the the person who spoke to me, the participant said, look, you know, I could either be in my own country and potentially get killed next week, or I could compromise and come to this university. <laughs> and, you know, when, it, when it's put like that, a question of do you have suitable choice kind of feels a little bit pointless <laughs> do you know what I mean it, it's kind of it, it pales into insignificance yeah. it's like well it's almost like saying well why why do you think choice matters and why was their choice compromised Rob are you able to share anything around that or did they talk about that yeah so choice choice was compromised for my participants for a couple of reasons so there were two main ones one ties in with financial so uh, that was why I sort of led with choice I think it, it filters down to the others so one was financial so, for example, I spoke to one of my participants was an asylum seeker when he was studying, but now has refugee status. And they discussed their experience of looking at a university. And when you are an asylum seeker, you're more often than not housed by the home office unless you are fortunate enough to not need to be in that position. So you immediately could be anywhere in the UK. So X person was housed somewhere. So that immediately limits where they can go because it's probably likely to be somewhere nearby further to that this individual was not in a financial position where they had finances available to them to go anywhere they were in receipt of the home offices 37 pound a week which isn't really enough to go anywhere or to travel particularly far 
So immediately you can kind of see that you're potentially restricted to a five to 10 mile radius from where you are based, which was the reality for this student. But then above that, even within that radius, there were five institutions, but their choice was only one because only one offered a scholarship. So there is a knock-on effect, both in access, but then also in reality of choice. So that's one reason. So financial is a major, major reason, is the most common reason why choice is compromised. However, a very interesting reason, which I didn't expect, but was somewhat indicative of the participants I had, was relationship with a third party. So some of my participants had come through a a charity and an organization that was supporting them to come to the UK and study. Now, all of these participants did not go through the asylum process. They were all on student visas, so tier four. And it was very interesting when they were talking about their experience of choice, because it kind of linked to financial reasons. But essentially, they had a a choice and they thought, okay, you know, these are my top three institutions, but this is where I really want to go. This is my number one. One participant had an interview with them. They felt it went well. But then in discussions with said third party, said third party said, well, you know, they're not quite as supportive as X institution. You might want to consider them. So they did. And because they had good connections with the charity or the organization and that institution, they ended up going there because they were not pushed, but kind of it became so common a topic that they felt that that was the best choice because it was kind of the the least difficult decision because, you know, they were, they knew they were going to get the support there. The, the framework was set up for the organization to support them whilst they were at that university where it wasn't at the other one. So it, it kind of really hit home that even when someone is fortunate to be on a regularized immigration status, they have pre-arrival and post-arrival support, both internally and externally from another organization, even then their choice could be compromised. And all of those students again said to me, yeah, well, you know, it wasn't my first choice. In fact, one, one participant said, it, it wasn't my first choice and I didn't really like it when I started. But then again, they're spending so much money on me and I've had so much great support and my family are back home and I, I don't want to kind of waste my opportunity in the UK. So, you know, I, I'm going with this one. And again, it, it it was difficult because I really felt that looking at choice was, a, was a, almost a flippant thing but it came from a place of genuine interest, but it, it really hammered home very quickly that, that choice is, um, is not necessarily something that is always available to those coming from a forced migration background, or at least is a bit of an illusion. And I think that's the difference we experience the most when we're looking at forced migrant student access to higher education compared to say a home student, the, the, the experience is night and day. So they're the main drivers for choice that I found, at least from from my uh, from my research. Also, you know, we, we looked at acculturation. So, uh, you know, acculturation was another one that I mentioned, and this was a really really difficult one to write because there was some there was some stuff that came up from some participants which was partly too harrowing to write, but also sadly not directly relevant to the research questions that I had, so it was excluded. But just to hammer home this idea of, I'm really glad this person is in higher education. They've got an amazing position to be there. 
all of the other problems don't disappear just because they have that access. Um, higher education does not resolve cultural differences. It does not resolve difficulties with racism or difficulties with um, people just not understanding them and their own experience. So acculturation is one that's very, very difficult. All of my participants said it was very, very hard for them. Uh, one of the biggest things was just not understanding the UK. For some of them, the UK was not a choice. It was just somewhere that they ended up being, or at least somewhere that they saw as safe. And if you if you think about leaving your home country and just trying to find a safe place, you're not necessarily going to sit in an internet cafe and research that country. So a lot of my participants spoke about just fundamentally not understanding how the UK works, not understanding our law, not understanding our expectations of our students, uh, how academic experience works in the UK. So all of that was something that they found really, really difficult uh, and very challenging to, to experience. And then also the institutional experience and and all of them, bar none, said how incredible their academic support was, which was really gratifying, was really amazing to hear and, and really lovely. Uh, one particular participant spoke of their supervisors as being their home, which was a really lovely concept, but also really difficult because they had said, you know, they'd left one home behind and, you know, they now had another one, which they just clung on to really desperately. Uh, there was always a, a, a sense of sort of sadness and, and real extreme emotion behind a lot of what was being discussed all the time. But the academic support bar none was incredible. But something that did come up, as I've mentioned from the staff point, is that the pastoral support whilst they were there was was very mixed. They are treated as 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 normal students, which is both a good and a bad thing. And also those with regular immigration statuses are, are treated like any student, any international student on a visa, which again is, is a good and a bad thing, that they have unique challenges that other international students on tier four may not. Um, a student from China coming for a master's will not have the same experience as a student who is coming over from, from Syria with, a, with an organizational support of extracting them from Syria and moving them to the UK. Very, very different. And there is an argument to be made that perhaps we should not be treating them as just normal students or normal, it's the wrong word to use, but standard international students that we look at in terms of numbers and, and maybe we should be doing something more contextual. So that was definitely something that came out was this struggle in experience was, was completely different between institutions. Largely was all very, very positive, which was, again, really gratifying, but it was very clear that once they were there, they were kind of left to their own devices to figure things out, which for some, two participants in particular, really set back their study early on because they just felt completely overwhelmed by everything. And I think if we had something a little bit more tailored for students in that situation, we would have been able to maybe rescue those first few months for them. And their experiences are all extremely valid and very serious and something for the wider sector to consider. But there were some actually quite sweet moments that made me kind of smile or chuckle when I read your research, particularly around attriculation. Have I said that word correctly? Yeah. Um, where some people thought they had quite good English or they had a Brummie accent or they didn't realize that they didn't have great English until they met somebody with a Brummie accent. And those kind of things, you know, made me smile, but also think about my own experience, even though I only moved from Ireland to the UK, 
lots of people couldn't understand me when I first moved over here because in Ireland we speak very fast and so when you put yourself in the context of someone where English isn't the first language and then you throw in strong accents on top of that as well as everything else going on in their lives you really get to understand how difficult and overwhelming that experience can be but there were some sweet moments in it around trying to understand accents and learn new words and kind of colloquialisms and things like that. Yeah, absolutely. There really were. And the accents thing was was funny because it, it came up more more often than I thought it was going to. Um, but yeah, accents are definitely a big variable. And I suppose you also kind of don't think about that, do you? But I guess that's a, a thing for a lot of international students, no matter their situation. You know, we all have very different accents all the time and, and that can you know make things quite complicated for students i would imagine but absolutely you're right and and there is a lot there is a lot in the interviews of, of really light-hearted uh, amusing stuff and when you began this study rob was there any particular expectations that were proved right or wrong you, know, you talked about what you thought your hypothesis might be in some of the methods that you undertook was there anything else that you know proved right or wrong for you while you undertook the study yeah i think Certainly, I expected things like choice to be something that wasn't available necessarily to forced migrants. Uh, I, I didn't necessarily expect it to be as drastic as it actually turned out to be, but certainly that I definitely expected. Uh, I, I did suspect that lots of different staff types and people across different teams would be involved in the delivery or the machinations of work with forced migrant students. So I would say that that was definitely something I expected. In terms of things I didn't expect, there were there was certainly, again, something that sadly ended up getting cut from, from my final piece of research, but was something that I will touch on, was there was another theme I originally had and I wrote it and I just didn't feel like it had the strength necessary for the art for the research paper that I was writing because I felt that it touched too much on the psychology of things and I just wasn't particularly strong in that field but it was this sense of guilt and almost a sense of feeling lucky there was a, there were times where that guilt really came through so so one student had remarked you know about well they had spent so much money on me and they had put so much time and effort on me that I kind of needed to get over my struggles at the beginning of term about being in a new country or there was another uh, participant that said they were in a position where again the money that had spent on them was so high that they felt they couldn't do certain things or felt that they shouldn't do certain things and again when you're looking at future research that <laughs> you know what I would do to love to co-author something in this area with a psychologist because there is so much there that you could look into. And, and that did surprise me. That that took me aback. And that was some of the really, uh, not darker, but some of the really harder moments of those interviews. Uh, and there were certainly elements of, I, I expected those interviews to be hard, obviously, but I didn't expect them to be as hard as they were. And the other thing I, I must say that is one of the main take-home points of the five student participants I had three of them were tier four visa holders. So the proportion were standard student visa holders. That I did not expect. I expected to be speaking to those who had sought asylum or, or who were refugees. And it, it broadened that horizon very, very quickly in my head that, okay, 
I almost feel a bit drilled into focusing on refugees and asylum seekers. And actually, the reality is that those identifying as having been through forced migration can be on any status at any point. You know, there is no privilege on being on a tier four visa. And that was something that I didn't expect. And finally, what recommendations do you have or did you make? And what further research would you like to see in this area? So I think the first thing is keep doing what you're doing. You know, when I looked at trying to provide a snapshot of what the the sector is doing, scholarships are working. Scholarships are absolutely working. They are critical lifelines for a lot of people. Um, a recommendation is to do more of it. Uh, is for people to is for institutions to invest more in providing more wide ranging scholarships and trying to broaden that and to try and move away from it it, it being sort of a, a one person scholarship and trying to broaden as much as possible. I appreciate obviously at the moment financially that's really difficult with with COVID and the situation we've got, but arguably it's kind of needed more than ever. Something that came out from a couple of my participants actually was they spoke about acculturation and when they were saying about their struggles of, of adapting to the UK, something that they suggested actually was having inline classes on English culture. So either having it in line with their studies or prior to their arrival, having some form of module on, on the UK and the culture of the UK, how our laws work, what is expected of people in the UK and also a little bit on how the English academic system works. A few of quite a few of my participants were also PhD students. So, you know, you're kind of thrown into it straight away. And the way a PhD works in England may not be the same as it works in Syria, for example. So it's the expectations that we have and how the structure of that works was something that they suggested and I think is an excellent suggestion. It's something that we should definitely be looking to provide and would certainly be something to to do. Also, just really a greater education of staff as well is to educate staff on on the situations people may have gone through. To have a little bit more exposure and expertise in these fields is really important. It's not a problem that's going to go away. There's more and more forced displacement in the world every single year. The numbers are going up by millions every year. Um, this problem is not going to go away, especially in the the smaller world we live in nowadays. So the greater education of staff is definitely, definitely important. And then I think also finally is sort of the big, one of the big take home points for me is to keep a broader viewpoint, um, is to consider that no matter what someone's immigration status, it, it kind of doesn't define their experience. Now, I know that everybody knows that and I know that institutions don't think like that, but equally when we're dealing with thousands of students and tens of thousands of students sometimes we are guilty of kind of having categories of students and, and saying okay well you know visa compliance is going to look after those students and then uh, we, we know these guys are scholarship recipients uh, we know these guys are scholarship recipients but we know that they are forced migrants so we know that we have to do something for them and, and x y and z and we kind of like everything being in neat packets which yes it has its benefits uh, and i'm not Again, there's a debate to be had of whether we should try and just provide a provision for all students and leave it at that, or whether we should be tailoring to to different experiences. But I would personally argue on reflection of what has come from the students and has come from staff that I actually think this is a, a slightly more unique situation that does need 
direct attention that is different to the standard stream of support that's given at an institution. So I think there is definitely a need to move away from thinking that, you know, those who are refugees or asylum seekers are the ones that just on their own, that group are the ones that need our support. And actually it's much wider than that. Um, and that we all probably have more forced migrants at our institutions that we even realise. Okay, brilliant. Thank you so much, Rob, for going through your research in wonderful detail there. You can tell just how passionate Rob is about this subject and how experienced he is too. And I have no doubt that if anyone is interested in reading his research, he'd be more than happy to share it. Coming up on our next episode, well, we don't know because we haven't invited the next person onto the episode, but no doubt it'll be someone as equally, if not more interesting uh, than Rob. But I don't know if anyone can top that, to be honest. Thank you for tuning in as always. And until then, until the next time, stay safe. Bye.